Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by another extraordinary activist from Africa, this time from Kenya. Jack Lekashan, who is Maasai, lives in the Maasai Mara, where he promotes a transition to a vegan diet and advocates for wildlife conservation. That is really cool. I know that you had to bend over backwards to get this interview recorded. Yeah, it was it, it was challenging. We had a lot of tech problems, but I thought it was worth it. I thought it would be worth it. And indeed, it was. It's just so fascinating that this work is being done, how important it is, like also that it's so connected to wildlife conservation, which is really the direction from which Jack was coming, the, the area in which he's trained. But um, the fact that he's also promoting veganism as, as a way to to deal with drought and the fact that that because the Maasai have traditionally had a, a great number of cattle, the, their land is, is being degraded and their land is also land where wild, we're talking about wildlife like you think about African wildlife. These are really the, the charismatic megafauna that live there. So what a crazy, fascinating interview. I am so glad we did. We finally got it. There are a lot of problems with. Well, actually, we smoothed out a lot of the problems with the tech. First of all, we tried, I think, through twice to set it up where it didn't work at all. Then this interview ended up being recorded in three different pieces on three different types of tech. So so there, there are a few bumps, but I think it's pretty comprehensible. So I hope you really enjoy it. I really enjoyed talking to him. I can't wait to hear that interview. I know you've been talking about it for a while. And before we get to it, I just want to express my sympathy for everybody in Europe because I know that it has been hot as hell there. Hopefully by the time this airs that passed, I was speaking with a friend of mine not that long ago and I said, she's in London. And I was like, how are you doing? And she's like, I, I can't like breathe. It's so hot. And I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently only 1% of people in the UK have air conditioning. So wow, you would love it, Marianne, because you hate air conditioning. Well, I don't hate air conditioning when it's 100 degrees out, that's for sure. And uh, like, it, bad enough in the UK, it was even worse. Like, I think Portugal was, I, I don't register the temperatures as much because they always come through in, in centigrade. And then I have to look up what they are in Fahrenheit. And when I in, when I do translate them, I'm in total shock. And of course, it's not just Europe. Southwest of the United States, like, has been having terrible heat waves this summer. And around the world, people have been having terrible heat waves. I don't know whether they're ever going to wake up, like, because the coverage you see, do you think it's getting any better? I don't know. Do you think it's, it's getting any more conscious of the fact that climate change is going on? Is it just like, you know, pictures uh, on the newspaper of people in bathing suits and fanning themselves and making funny remarks about how hot it is? It's insane, but it's also super scary, super scary. So far up here in Rochester, New York, we have been very lucky. We haven't had, I mean, we've had, you know, some hot summer weather, but nothing unusual. But I, my sympathies to all of you who have been suffering through this. We were talking to somebody from, from, I think it was Dallas a while ago, who said like, like when you live in Texas, you hardly go out in the summer anymore. Like you yeah. just need to be in air conditioning. Let's transition to better news in Europe. I guess this would be central Europe. Southern part of Central Europe. To be specific, we are not playing Worldle. We are still on the Arhan House podcast, and I'm talking about Austria. 
I can't believe you mentioned Wordle. No, I said Wordle. That's different than Wordle. There's Wordle and Wordle. Oh. Wordle is where you see a shape and you have to guess what country. I play that too. You don't play that? No, I don't play any of them. I don't I don't know what people are talking about when they post them. I just like I can't believe there are still post people who are posting their Wordle results. Well, no, sorry if if you're if you are. <laughs> I, I never know what people are talking about. I didn't know there was such a thing as Wordle. But yeah, we're talking about Austria. So let's, let's Wait, can I just say one thing before we talk about Austria? I am learning so much about geography from Wordle. Like after I missed geography, like they didn't have it when I was in school. And so I, I don't know where anything is. And so I'll find, I'll l- learn about a country through Worldle and then I'll go read the whole oh, history of that, that country. Sounds very I've, been, I've been very much enjoying it. Not as much as I would enjoy going to Austria right now, heat aside. Because uh, you would you would want to go if you went to Austria to Burger King <laughs> places because this is the craziest thing. I mean, you may have heard of this. I don't know. But I just think it's so amazing. In all the Burger Kings in Austria are presenting their their veggie burgers there, which are impossible burgers, of course, as normal. And then if you want, you can you can ask for meat. Uh, but unless you ask, specifically ask for meat, if you, if you order a Whopper, you'll be getting a, a, a an impossible burger like this is the future, folks. This is how it needs to be. I am so excited about this because the fact is, is that most people just kind of go with the flow, <laughs> like whatever, like that's people aren't thinking a whole lot about anything. And and I love that they call it normal. The hashtag is normal odor mit Fleisch, which as far as my very limited German can say means normal or with meat. Which the fact that Fleisch is the word for meat in in German is particularly entertaining because I I I think I want to start calling it flesh. In I think I've tried to do that before. Instead of calling it meat, we need to call it flesh. It's so much more disgusting. What about carcasses? Do you think carcasses works, or is that too like? I think it's a little in your face. But flesh is is a little subtler. Flesh is maybe yeah. And, yeah, and then if somebody right. gets mad at you, you can always say, oh, right, uh, my grandma was German. That's what she always called it. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, we digress. Uh, this has got to be the new way. I love this. And, you know, everybody, why don't we do this in the U.S.? Why is Europe so far ahead of us? I, I, it makes me nuts. Uh, this other story. It reminds me of when Katie Cantrell was on our henhouse way back on episode, let's see, 596, it looks like, because that this that was similar to the campaign Katie was working on, make everything default veg. And then if you want some if you want to have flesh on top of that, you have to go out of your way to order it, as opposed to making veganism the thing that you have to specify. Yeah, I, I loved that interview. And I think I think I looked at their website fairly recently to see whether there was updates on who they were working with. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure I got as much information as I want because I, I love that campaign. And I know they're doing institutional work. They're not just suggesting this for individuals. They're working with institutions like as maybe they got Burger King to do this. I don't know. But I, I think it's very powerful. And, you know, it's not it doesn't bring up that whole like, vegan or or humane meat kind of conflict it's like yeah more more vegan just more and more vegan and it but it also doesn't set people's backs up 
the way even Meatless Monday can make them crazy, like they should that that they're being forced to eat this. They're not being forced to do anything. They're they just have to ask for it. I love this campaign. Well, we have some news about uh, another. I w- I guess not a campaign, but survey results that. W- you were the one who pointed this to me, and I think it's incredible. You always find the best stuff on Twitter. Yeah, well, actually, there were two different surveys. One of them is directly relevant, and that is, it's from Belgium, which I guess is near Austria. You should know that. <laughs> now that you're doing Worldle, is Belgium next to Austria? Anyway, in Belgium, and they don't even have this default veg campaign. One out of three Whoppers in Belgium is veggie. Like, is that crazy? They're not even doing this. We need to catch up here. This is crazy. But the other survey that I found, this is fascinating and might explain why we don't catch up because it's a survey of Americans. doesn't have anything to do with Whoppers, but this is the craziest statistic I've heard this week. 44% of Americans support a ban on slaughterhouses. 44% a ban on slaughterhouses, while 94% think eating animals is a personal choice. Like, what? Do they not understand that in order to eat an animal, the animal has to go through a slaughterhouse? Like if you ban them, that's not a personal choice. It's like people cannot think about animals like their brains, their brains. Well, people don't think much about a lot of things. Then another one, uh, 35% support a ban on animal farming. That's a pretty high number. Wow. <laughs> like, there are no, there's no way that 35% are eating animals. So what? And 52%, this is the most alarming statistic, I think, think most farmed animals are treated well. We have work to do. Wow. Like, it's so easy to forget that people just still don't know. Admittedly, a lot of their ignorance is a little willful, but they still don't know. Yeah, it's very, very typical for a, an American, someone from the U.S. specifically, to have such a divide between their beliefs and their behaviors. I mean, I don't get that, but I get why that's the case for this survey. I think that brings us back to the first point that we were making, why the default veg kind of campaign or the thing that they're doing in Austria that you have to ask for meat is so powerful because most people's brains are not in operation when they're thinking about meat. You know, they'll kind of eat whatever's put in front of them, whatever's easiest, whatever the default is. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, at least we have people like Jack who are working to align the behavior with people's worldviews. Jack Lekashan is a native Maasai currently residing in Maasai Mara, Kenya. He is committed to preserving the natural environment and teaching young leaders how to be future stewards of the land. Jack aims to inspire youth in Kenya and, more broadly, East Africa to become involved in both wildlife and environmental conservation efforts while raising awareness of the grand economic, cultural, and aesthetic value of the natural world. Jack holds a diploma in wildlife and tourism and management and conservation from Wildlife Clubs of Kenya Center for Tourism Training and Research. He currently works with Million Dollar Vegan to promote veganism and raise awareness about animal rights and the challenges facing our planet. He will be joining Marianne right after this. I'm Miyoko Shinner of Miyoko's Creamery, and today I want to share my love story with you. But first, I want to let you know that you can get 15% off your next order at Miyoko's.com with offer code HENHOUSE15. 
Growing up, my father and I would travel to faraway places in search of cheese. Ripe cheese, stinky cheese, velvety, soft cheese. It was an obsession we bonded over. Our shared love for cheese took me to France, Italy, and nearby Sonoma. As I got older, my tastes remained the same, but my values changed. I became a true lover of animals, not as ingredients, but as living beings. In those days, there was no way to satisfy both my palate and my soul, so I started making cheese myself by culturing plant milks instead of animal milks. Through trial and many errors, through the noise of naysayers and through a commitment to compassion and craft, I made something I love, and I'm here to share it with you for you to share with your loved ones. At Miyoko's Creamery, we craft the finest plant milk dairy products in the world, right here in the heart of California's famed wine region, Sonoma. Through our craft, plant milk cheese and butter, we honor traditional dairy making methods while finding novel ingredients with nature's bounty. The food we make is made of love for the planet, for all living beings, and for you. With love, Miyoko. 15% off your next order at miyokos.com with offer code henhouse15. Welcome to our henhouse, Jack. Thank you. I, I want to talk about your background and your vegan advocacy and your wildlife advocacy. These are all very exciting topics, but I know there is this very important story going on right now in Tanzania regarding the eviction of the Maasai from their lands. And I want to talk about that as well. But first, I thought we would start with a little bit of background. And, and can you just tell us a little bit about the Maasai Mara? Where is it and who lives there? Yes, uh, I'm Jack Lekishon, a native Maasai warrior. We, uh, I am a young man, wildlife conservationist and environmentalist, and also the community leader from the Maasai Mara, Kenya. Here in the Maasai Mara, people rely on the tourism when it comes to the economically, and also they depend on the livestock keeping, that is like cows, sheep, and goats on a very large scale. This is a an area which also recorded the highest number of wildlife conservancies, whereby uh, the community sets part of the uh, part of the land, part of the land parcel for the sake of the wildlife uh, conservation. Briefly, maybe that's what I can say when it comes to the Maasai Mara. I, I know that both the Maasai and and many wild animals, um, the kind of the classic African wild animals that we all have heard about all over the world, live in the Maasai Mara. Can you tell us a little bit? about who the animals who live there and also what it was like growing up there? The people, uh, uh, just as I've said, they keep uh, livestock on the large scale. And uh, at the same time, this is an area which uh, records the wild beast migrations, especially uh, during this time that's uh, happening right now. Uh, between uh, June and uh, November, we are having thousands of wild beasts coming into Kenya and they go back to Tanzania. On the same note, the Maasai people, they do not do a lot of farming uh, simply because of the climate change. And uh, the Maasai Mara is also a well-known area in East Africa and also in Africa at large, uh, where we can find uh, the big five animals, which are very famous uh, in this place, which we have the elephants, we have the lions, we have the, we have the cheetahs, and uh, we have the rhinos. Those are some of the, the, the big five that we have. You can also observe, uh, or we can, you can also witness uh, the shy five, the small five, the impossible five, which are very rare to see in the Maasai Mara. Of course, uh, some can be seen uh, during the night, uh, during the, 
their night safaris, uh, some you can be seen during the day or while doing a walking safari. That is what, what makes uh, this place a globally known uh, in the world. And at the same time, it is well known when it comes to the beautiful of the landscape. Uh, when it comes to the, 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 the vegetations, uh, the sunset and the sunrise. So basically, that's what I can say on the same. It, it sounds like a very, just an amazing place. But as you've mentioned, your people, the Maasai, are very dependent on animals as a food source. And can, can you explain the traditional diet of the Maasai? Yes, uh, the Maasai are uh, indigenous people. They, they believe to survive uh, on the animals' products, like the milk from the cows. We also have meat, and then we also have eggs from the hens, from the chickens, and also we also we they also depend on the taking blood, cow blood, sheep blood, and also even the goat blood. So that is the main uh, source of food. How did it happen that you made this big change in the way that you eat and you shifted to, uh, I believe you're a vegan, you follow a vegan diet. Is, is that true? And how did that happen? Of course, yes. I am a vegan and I'm um, three years old, young vegan Maasai warrior. I started uh, this initiative immediately when the COVID-19 hit the world globally, when the people suffering, people are living with a lot of starvation, malnutrition, hunger, crisis. So I started fundraising uh, funds to ensure that uh, the humble backgrounds, the poor families, poor children, even in the, even in the schools, I started uh, the feeding program whereby the million dollar Fergan uh, came in to support uh, this program right from the community to where we are right now by uh, converting students in the school into Ferganism. And we realized that um, we have to go Fergan in order to to fight for the future pandemics, we know very well that the source of the COVID-19 is the animal's products or it is come from the animal product that has been used that has spread the disease. So I decided to go Fekan simply to be kind to the planet, to the animals, and for the sake of our health. So you mentioned during the pandemic you were involved with a vegan food relief program. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it was received? Were people excited about it? Yes, uh, when the pandemic started, uh, of course, uh, uh, when people are very hungry, people turn to look an alternative for survival. And the way that they have shifted to, to a new feeding program is people uh, started hunting animals for food. Of course, the, the, the local markets were closed, no, um, no shops that are open. And at the same time, the food prices went high, of course, because of the COVID uh, pandemics. And uh, because of this, this is an, a well-renowned place uh, whereby there is a lot of conservancies. We have the Masai Mara National Reserve. Animals are crossing the community land from the, from the Masai Mara National Reserve to the wildlife conservancies or to the community land. So people turn that uh, since no one can afford uh, food from the shop, since all markets are closed to access the vegetables, now people are shifted to uh, wildlife hunting, especially like topis like uh, zebras, like gazelles, like uh, giraffes. This was uh, a very risky or this was a very uh, bad way of survival. And others, they turned into the ecosystem by destroying, by cutting down of trees, burning charcoal and sell charcoal as a source of, as a source of funds. Of course, uh, the Maasai Mara is well known depending on the tourism. And because of this, the young people from the Maasai land, they are the ones who are the guardians, who are the tour guides, of all the, the, the tourists who are coming into the country. And because uh, all camps are closed and all staff has been sent back home uh, during the pandemic, of course, 
everyone, uh, depending on the tourism industry, they have lost jobs and therefore everybody went back home. People are also shifted to sand harvesting, whereby uh, you can find a high population uh, in, in the rivers, in the streams, fetching sands and selling to the big lorries that are traveling even to Nairobi and other parts of the country. The degradation of the national resources was automatically being done, and this made me to raise an awareness or to raise an alarm, calling the world globally to come on board to ensure that uh, we're ensuring this community are accessing food, especially um, the vegan foods, to ensure that uh, they are not hunting animals anymore, they are not cutting trees uh, anymore, they are not destroying uh, uh, rivers and streams by fetching the sands, of course. We know that water is also home for some, some other animals who cannot survive on the land. Basically, we use the social media to call for this action, we, especially the GoFundMe fundraisers, some user plot or other platforms. And uh, we access uh, foods from the big towns in the country, like Narok Town uh, in Nairobi. We distribute it to families while they're staying uh, safe at home. And uh, we're ensuring we have a team from every village especially the village elders, who are ensuring that there is a um, fairly uh, distribution of food. And also we consider the most needy that needs our quick uh, response for food relief. We visited uh, village to village, distributing food very equally and very responsibly. And also we had a team of youths whom we are still working right now because to ensure that we are helping our community, uh, we have about uh, 50 youths another 50 youths, so we have a group of two, which makes a total of 100 youths who are helping in distribution of this food. That's an, an amazing story. And it's not just the pandemic either. Uh, I know that you believe it's very important for people to shift your, their diets in that area, uh, particularly away from raising cattle. And one of the reasons is, is climate change and drought. Is that right? Yes, of course, is not only because of the pandemic, but uh, we are looking into the future for the sake of the future generations and generations to come. Because when you try to see this is the most land that is hosting a variety of wildlife, uh, the community is converting their big lands or their parcel of lands into conservation for the sake of the, of the vegetation uh, conservation, for the sake of wildlife. Of course, as, just, as I have said, uh, the Maasai uh, keep herds of animals. This also is causing a lot of a challenge when it comes to the conservation, because if you can find a family with approximately 1,000 cows, 700 cows, of course, uh, even grazing becomes a problem. And also we have a lot of drought. So you can find during the drought season, uh, this community facing a lot of great loss because right from the 700 cows in a family, they can die up to 400 cows during the drought season. So for the sake of this, we are turning on this to ensure that it will reach a point whereby we will encourage our people to do farming, to grow vegetables on their homes, to ensure that they have a plenty of food for the sake of the future. Do you anticipate the Maasai staying on the land and food being brought in from other areas? Or do you think that people can grow food and do more cultivation of food, which has not been a Maasai tradition, has it? Yes, of course, uh, that is very true. Uh, when you try to see because of these people, uh, this community keep a lot of animals. Normally when they access, uh, when they access vegetables, like for us who are, who are vegans, and also, of course, in the, in the Maasai Mara local centers, uh, we have other communities that are shifting in, coming to work from other parts of the country who are not uh, livestock keepers, of course. This also makes uh, these local markets to grow. Of course, in these local markets, there is a, uh, 
vegan foods that are being sold like vegetables, all kinds of vegetables. But even even in Maasai tradition, I, I understand, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's even a, a feeling that it's wrong to, to dig into the land, that that is, that is not the traditional way of life. Do people resist farming? From the statistics or from the study that I've took uh, so far, it's kind of just an mentality that needs to be to be removed in a very smart way through the, the through the conservation or through the educational forum. Of course, we have the Western education, which has now changed um, a lot of uh, young people or even some of some of the people that have learned. We also have Christianity that has changed the way you know, of the Maasai life. So, of course, through this awareness, because we are now shifting into farming awareness on the importance of farming, on the importance of uh, growing food, this is very important because it is an alternative way of survival even during the drought season and also even during the outbreak of the pandemics in the future. Aside from the pandemic, I know that you believe it is very important for people to shift their diets away from this reliance on cattle because it's not sustainable for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons is drought, which is increasing because of climate change. Am I right about that? Okay, thank you. As I said uh, yesterday, that uh, it is very important for the people to to, to shift uh, the debt away from the from the depending on the animals' products and of course uh, keeping the hearts of animals. Just as you have said, there is a, a drought, which is uh, which is the main issue here, which leads to the great loss of animals. And at the same time, keeping these hearts of animals on this land where we have a lot of conservation going on both in the Masemara uh, conservancies and also in the Masemara Natural Reserve. It is leading to the degradation of the natural resources. Since these animals are destroying the natural forest, they are making a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of uh, pathways in the parks, in the in the forest, and also destroying uh, all the vegetations because uh, because of the big numbers. As I said yesterday, people are keeping very big number of animals, and of course. Uh, this is leading to the to the destruction of the of the available resources. This is exactly why uh, this is very important for people to shift on and go to the plant-based um, lifestyle, whereby people can grow uh, vegetables, can grow other plants, uh, foods, which is more sustainable because of of these reasons. Yes, I I certainly can see why keeping large numbers of cattle can be destructive to the environment. But where will people get food? Will people be able, especially in a drought-damaged land, will people be able to grow food? Or do you expect to be able to import food? I'm just wondering, how, how do you answer that question of, well, what will we eat? Uh, Mariam, uh, this is a, a very good question. I'm encouraging our community, and uh, we are here to inspire them to shift from livestock to plant-based lifestyle. And the source of food uh, will be mainly from farming. Because in the Masemara, uh, even though there is some months which have a lot of drought, but in between, I'm very sure they will be able to grow plenty of food and store in preparations uh, ahead of the dry months where we experience a lot of drought. At the same time, um, uh, the community can also access uh, these plant-based meals or foods in the local markets because, of course, we have um, so many local markets uh, in the Mara. This will be an access uh, to these people. You remember that uh, in the Mara, people uh, depend on the 100% rate on keeping the animals. 
and also in the tourism industry, which is also their main source of, of, of financial status um, in the community, because we have many camps. Uh, the young people here, they are local tour guides. As long as the people have funds, the source of funds, as long as the industry is keeping on uh, shining, uh, the source of, of funds will not be cut off. And therefore, these people can access food from the local markets. To be self-sustainable and to be self-independent uh, uh, on, on, on this production of food, people should shift, uh, they should grow food uh, at their homes, they should grow vegetables, and any other thing like uh, cooking oil, all, all, all those can be accessed in the local shops. I did an, a statistic, and I am very sure this is successful, but um, it is only that uh, this is a, a tradition for the Maasai, which is their best lifestyle. And because of these pandemics and because of the climate change that is coming uh, right away, or that is, that is already we are phasing on, uh, it is very possible for us to change. Remember, uh, right now, uh, people should change their mindset, people should change their, their, their way of lifestyle, uh, as long as um, there is a global change when it comes to the climate change. And uh, of course, people do not experience a lot of drought, like, um, let us say, uh, 25 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Of course, as time goes, there is a lot of climate change. And uh, there are some months which we never experience uh, rainfall in this areas where these indigenous community are living and uh, because of the same this will make uh, the shift uh, to be very possible for the benefit of a sustainable uh, lifestyle your last answer leads us completely to the other area i was want to talking about because we don't want to just want to talk to you about veganism and diet but about wild animals because this seems to be really your passion most of your background has to do with working with the wild animals and, and, and uh, which is totally normal considering where you live. And in fact, where you live is one of the most precious places on earth. It's something that everybody, almost everybody in the world knows about. And of course, ecotourism ha is already important there. And you see that, I think, as as really the savior uh, of your people, that, that they should be more involved in and get more of the benefit from, from the ecotourism in the area. I don't know whether I'm putting words in, in your mouth, so tell me, but you, you already mentioned some of the animals that live in the area and that the wildebeest migration goes through this area. So it is an amazing place. So how do you see the Maasai's involvement in ecotourism to, to increase that area of benefit for them so they don't have to rely so much on cattle production? Uh, basically, uh, what, what I can say that the Maasai have really realized the importance of ecotourism because of the tourism industry, of course, uh, some of these lodges and some of these camps are living on the community land. They're incorporating this business through the community support, through the community participation. Because of this, they are really supporting ecotourism when it comes to the tree planting to fighting the climate change. Of course, people have now that idea, and uh, that is exactly what we, what we are doing, even in the grassroots of uh, reaching uh, the schools. Uh, spreading the conservation education, the importance of trees, the importance of conserv uh, wildlife conservation as well. And of course, spreading on how people should interact with the animals without uh, human-wildlife conflict, because this is an area whereby uh, animals and people have freedom in movement. Animals are moving from one conservancy, from uh, the National Reserve to other areas uh, in the community land. Right now, what actually can show that uh, this community are really cooperating, uh, especially when, it's the, when it comes to the ecotourism, is that uh, people now are leasing their part of their lands, including where they're living, 
to some of their camps and lodges who can support the environmental conservation. They are listing uh, and get, uh, let us say, monthly uh, payments or in a, in a yearly payment uh, so that these people can... Um, can do a tree planting in part of their in part of their homes in part of their lands. Apart from the lands that are being used uh, for as a conservancy, now back at home where people are living, they are now giving out this land to allow a ecotourism organization, ecotourism comes to lease and pay. Additionally, people now are really admiring on the importance of the using a solar system at homes and also at the local centers. And also, when it comes to the water pumping, uh, of course, there are some um, eco camps or ecologists that are supporting the community through uh, water projects. Of course, this goes to the fight of the climate change, where people uh, sometimes face uh, water scarcity and also animals uh, lack water uh, because of the drought. And of course, uh, this is now one of the systems that, that is being used, solar system to pump water. People now are using the same at homes for kids to study while uh, during the holidays. And also, this is uh, one of the ways people are now using uh, the solar system lighting at homes to make them co- comfortable and to make life better. So um, I can actually say through this again, uh, through what else can show us that uh, ecotourism is, is more important and the community are motivated uh, to participate on it, even including in the local churches. Uh, people are planting a lot of trees in school. People are planting a lot of trees. And even at homes, people are having uh, these eco camps, are having these tree projects, and uh, people can go and borrow trees. Uh, some, even uh, like us, who do a lot of volunteer work in the community, we can go and uh, ask permission to plant trees in such local churches and also encourage people to plant trees at their homes. And we keep on monitor on uh, whether these people are taking care of these trees or not, such that in a certain period, uh, these people can be encouraged to be given a reward, uh, especially the solar lighting for the, for kids to study at home because of taking care of these trees. So what can actually show on the importance of ecotourism and how uh, this community is picking up on the same. Yeah, it sounds like there's so much going on there that's very exciting and very looking towards the future. And, you know, I really want to go on, get into what's going on in Tanzania because it doesn't seem, it seems like they are looking more to the past than the future. And before we do, like, I think there's a kind of obvious question in that area as to why do you see ecotourism as more beneficial to the local economy than bringing in trophy hunting? The ecotourism is really uh, giving on the modernized ways of uh, people's survival because, that, of course, taking care of the environment will also be friendly to, to everyone, including the animals, including the people, because if ecotourism is much uh, rooted in the community, of course, remember that there, there will also be improvement uh, of the soil. When uh, there is also a lot of tree planting, of course, we believe that uh, when plant a lot of trees, uh, of course, it attracts a lot of rain. And uh, because of this, when a lot of trees is planted as well, I believe that uh, this is also uh, leads to the conservation of soil. That's what I can basically identify is on that. But but speaking of trophy hunting, that is a lot to do with going on what's going on in Tanzania. And I I can't I know Tanzania is a completely separate country, but for the Maasai, really 
there are Maasai people on both sides of the border, if I understand correctly. So in some ways it's, it's a different country, but it's the same people. You know, I don't have a, an in-depth knowledge. So just give us uh, an idea of what is happening there and the conflict going on between the government and, and the Maasai people in, in that area of Tanzania. There is a little difference between uh, the Maasai who on this border and also and from those who are in the Tanzania. Because uh, in Kenya, uh, trophy hunting is uh, very illegal. The people on this side, in the Maasai Mara, and also, of course, in Kenya in general, have realized the importance of wildlife conservation. And uh, everybody is participating on this to ensure that uh, animals are being uh, taken care of. No hunting, no wild meat, and also no cutting down of trees when it comes to the charcoal burning uh, businesses. Because, of, of course, this is... Uh, leads to the destruction of the uh, of the wildlife uh, habitats. What is happening is that through the community in cooperation when it comes to the conservation, this is uh, what encouraging the, the community to give uh, part of their land to be made uh, conservancies for the sake of wildlife conservation and for the sake of the nature conservation. And when it comes to these wildlife uh, conservancies, which is, of course, the community-based land, the people who are working as ranchers who are working as uh, wildlife uh, watchdogs is from the community. This is also working as a source of employment, as a source of jobs for the local people. Also in the Mass and Mara National Reserve, uh, it is the same people uh, from the local community who are being employed to patrol day and night to ensure that uh, animals are safe uh, day and night for the sake of ensuring that uh, there is no hunting that is going on, both in the community land and both uh, and also in the Mara National Reserve. When it comes to the trophy hunting, of course, it is very legal, and that's why in the conservancies, there is always uh, the entry and exit points, and also in the Mara National Reserve, there is always the exit and entry points, and of course, people are patrolling their night. When you try to see uh, in deep uh, details, uh, for example, if a cheetah is identified to have given birth to a certain number of kids, always that animals have to be monitored day and night by the ranchers, uh, monitoring when the kids are growing until they become adults. This is to ensure that um, there is no an animal that is being taken away out of the conservancies, out of the community land, or out of the national reserve for the sake of uh, these uh, kind of businesses where people are depending on the wild animals uh, for survival when it comes to the illegal markets of, of, of the wild animals. Uh, in Kenya, uh, this is actually uh, very condemned and it's not allowed totally. And uh, the county government is also coming on board to ensure that people, uh, the community are living with animals in harmony. And that's why the animals from the National Reserve can move to the conservancies uh, to and fro. There is freedom of movement on these animals. That's why for those uh, community or the local people who have who did life fences in their parcel of land are uh, being now encouraged to remove it, whereby the conservancies are supporting them to ensure that they are responsible to what they have spent to put on the life fences uh, or the wildlife corridors. This is to open up the land to make uh, freedom for the animals to move uh, freely and also from uh, one place to another. As you can see uh, that everybody is, who is on board to ensure that uh, animals are living in harmony. And at the same time, the county government, also the local leaders and also the conservancies boards are making a lot of boreholes that animals, the, the animals and the, and the domestic animals are sharing uh, to access water. This is because uh, sometimes when there is a lot of drought, animals and also the, the domestic and the wild animals, everyone suffers when it comes to the drought. 
So to ensure that uh, the animals, the wild animals and the domestic animals access uh, safe water during the dry season, uh, now in every conservancy making a lot of boreholes, and both animals, the wild and the domestic, they can access freely without actually the human-wildlife conflict. And uh, it's also happening that uh, these conservancies and also the county government, when the lions uh, kill the animals, the cows, the sheep and goats, the Maasai no longer compensate by killing the lion. These people are shifting in, uh, taking the, the records, taking the witnessing that this has happened, the number of cows, the number of sheep that has been killed by a lion. And then the, the owner has to be compensated when we're especially uh, using uh, the financial support. So this is to bring uh, people together that you should not kill a lion uh, because ability has killed a cow. So the, there is a board or there is an organization that compensates uh, the great loss for the local people. And this is bringing a lot of positive impacts and people are no longer directly uh, fighting with the animals for survival on the same planet. Yeah, no, it sounds like what you're doing is incredibly progressive. And and just to go back to the Tanzania question, it, it does sound like at least possible from what I've heard that the approach being taken in Tanzania is more looking backwards and possibly like supporting trophy hunting and not looking as much to the future as it is in your area where ecotourism and as you pointed out, and, you know, I know is an incredibly important thing for you, the planting of trees to improve the land and to help fight the drought. All of these things are very progressive in looking to the future that we have to live in. I know that you, you do a lot of wildlife conservation work with children, which is so important if we're going to be looking to the future. Do the children you work with understand what an extraordinary place they live in and what extraordinary animals uh, inhabit the area where they live? Do they know it's amazing there? Or do Sorry? they think it's, th or is it just like <laughs> another day? My passionate uh, rely basically on the conservation, both for the wildlife and also on the environment conservation. And uh, this is what I studied in the college. And uh, because of this, I do a lot of conservation when it comes to the kids because I realize that it is uh, very easy to change the mindset of a young person compared to our grandfathers and our grandmothers. Of course, it is past age whereby they can easily understand when exactly what is happening. And I also believe that when I change the mind of a young kid, for example, if I reach a number of uh, 800 students in a school, teaching them and educating them on the importance of wildlife, on the importance of the environment, on the importance of fighting the climate change, on the importance of changing the diet from animals' product to the plant-based lifestyle, of course, I believe that um, when uh, these kids, when, when these uh, children change their minds, it helps me to spread the message to reach 800 families, of which I could, I could not achieve to gather all of them together in one place and be able to address them. And I've seen this working very well. These students are spreading this word when they go back, when they go back home. And that's why we do, uh, I do teach them on the importance of tree planting, uh, the importance of wildlife, on how they can appreciate nature itself, how they can realize the importance of nature. And after that, uh, sometimes I organize, I have clubs in different schools, that is wildlife clubs and environmental clubs, so that sometimes uh, through some um, financial support, when we raise a lot of funds, we can use some extra to take these kids outside uh, to the National Reserve, to the conservancies, for them to be able to appreciate the nature, to appreciate how animals are living freely. This is actually touches the heart. 
That's why once in a year, I do organize a cleanup in the Masamara National Reserve, especially in the month of April or in the month of March, whereby we, we organize to collect all the rubbish in the park. This is uh, one of the things that these kids learn on why should we take care of the environment. Uh, you can realize over the past years, during the game drive, uh, you can find holding the plastics, which is very shameful to see an animal holding uh, rubbish or uh, holding a plastic uh, bottle in the mouth. So uh, because of this, this is uh, actually the reason why we are doing this. And it is, it is the young people who are doing this. It is not our mothers, it is not our fathers, it is not our grandmothers. It is them who come out in large numbers and do a cleanup. And uh, when these kids go back home, they know that uh, there is a need to clean their, their home compound. At the same time, we do a cleanup uh, in the local centers. We organize that uh, this month we go to a certain local center and do a cleanup and be able to separate the bottles and what should be banned and what should be what is reusable. There is a very positive impact when it comes to the educating the young people. Just can I ask you too, I, I think you mentioned also that you, at least during the pandemic, you had a vegan school lunch program in, in the schools as well. So you're not just teaching the children, you're helping to feed them as well. Is that right? Yes. Uh, right now, uh, I have uh, three schools, which we are helping uh, through the Million Dollar Falcon organization based in the U.S. And uh, this is uh, an organization that is spreading uh, veganism lifestyle. And uh, right now, we have three schools in Damara. We started uh, last year, whereby we have three schools, uh, which we are supporting uh, directly through the Million Dollar Organization based in the U.S. And uh, we do vegan meals delivery on a monthly basis. So every, every month we deliver food, uh, vegan meals, which will approximate that uh, it will be enough for these kids to feed on until uh, the next month. So every first date of each month, we have to deliver these meals. And now we have uh, three schools. We have uh, Marafali uh, Fagan School. We have Talek Fusion Fagan School. Then we have Talek Boarding uh, Fagan School. These three schools has a total of uh, 3,500 kids, which are now uh, converted into Fagan, into Fagans on the 100% rate. Through this program, we have realized that uh, after converting these uh, 3,500 kids, when they go back home uh, during the holidays, they also bring the same impact to their families. Now, it is so surprising for their parents to realize that my child is no longer eating meat. My child is no longer, no longer eating uh, animals' product. They go specifically for the vegan meals, uh, even back at home. And some have even already influenced their parents to go vegan as well. So that's why I was focusing, and I have been focusing that um, when we change the young people, we directly or indirectly can change their background or their families that they came from. And when we change this number of kids and uh, this number of families, of course, in one way or the other, we are reaching the whole society. So that's why we have uh, focused on, and uh, we started uh, with the three schools, and maybe as time goes, as much as we continue uh, receiving a lot of support, we'll be able to reach other schools in the, in the neighborhood to ensure that we are teaching them on the feminism uh, lifestyle. Everything you do seems to focus really on helping your people adapt to what are really very dramatic changes going on in the whole world in, in positive ways rather than in negative ways. And I'm just wondering, as a closing question, do you believe that the Maasai and perhaps just Africa at large and Africans have the potential to lead 
in, in the future in learning how to adapt to what's really going to be a new world because of climate change and, and, and pandemics and they're affecting the whole world. Do you see Africa and, and the Maasai in particular as being leaders in this? Because it sounds like what you're doing is very progressive. This is very right. And uh, I have a lot of hope and I have a lot of faith. And uh, always I believe that um, through a global uh, solidarity, through a, as a global family, it is, remember that uh, it is I and you who will bring a change. Of course, we have to start small and move bigger. And I believe that because of this climate change and because what the world is currently facing and where we are heading on uh, as a global, of course, I believe that uh, the Africa at large and the Maasai as well, and also the Kenya people are ready to go as part the world is moving. And that's why I didn't mention about, uh, of course, can be related to what you have just asked about the global matches for the, for the endangered species in, in the Maasai Mara. Of course, we organize these global matches once in a year, but uh, over the pandemic time, uh, we lost a lot of financial support and uh, this has uh, collapsed and we hope that it will go back to normal again. So we normally do a lot of global matches whereby we do once in a year in Masai Mara and also once in a year in Nairobi, Kenya. This is uh, basically to target on the importance of the wildlife conservation. We speak against uh, trophy hunting. We speak against um, depending on the wild animals for survival. Of course, uh, through selling, through trophy hunting, and even through killing and, and, and eating their, their products directly, uh, like, like meat. That is exactly uh, what what we are taking we, we, we are taking on to ensure that everybody gets this message. There is also an organization which is called uh, NAD, which we normally do uh, this Animal Rights Day once in a year, and I lead the same uh, in the Mass Mara through NAD uh, support base in the US. That on every month of, of June on fifth, we commemorate the loss, the great loss of the animals that have already uh, that have been already killed. So that uh, we mourn, we commemorate, we come together and also spread the same word. So I believe that uh, there is a change. Africa is ready to change uh, because uh, through the voice of the young people, I believe that uh, when, because I've already worked with the young people so much, I believe that we can make a change. And it, it is us. We are not here to wait someone else to be able to make a change. It is our time and we have to stand and we have to speak and we have to come out in large numbers and say, uh, this is right. I did also mention about uh, some other prog programs, but maybe you can ask later whether I have anything else to say. No, I was, I was just going to ask you if you had anything else to say. So please yeah. tell it. T yes. Tell me everything that I should have asked you, but I didn't. What you have not just mentioned is that I have uh, some about uh, two programs, empowerment program, education empowerment program, whereby I do a sanitary towns drive. Uh, of course, uh, the Maasai, they do not recognize um, women uh, as most important people in their society. They always believe that uh, men have a voice and men have a right to education and men have a right to, 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 their, to their human rights. And uh, I'm also fighting for these girls' rights. I'm fighting against the FGM, which is a composition for girls, which is very illegal. This is actually going very down uh, because I've seek a lot of permission from the government, seek a lot of support to ensure that always when I when I make a voice, I will not be able to get an attack directly from from the community. 
So I do a monthly sanitary drive. Of course, uh, all our projects are GoFundMe projects. We raise funds through GoFundMe for all these. So I do delivery for monthly uh, sanitary towels for our girls. Uh, it is so uh, bad that uh, you can um, find that this monthly thing for our girls can also prevent them from going to school because they do not access to such uh, important supplies. And you can find during the end of the month for those girls who have already reached to such a period, you can find a whole class. All students have, have missed to, to attend the school because of the same. They do not have sanitary towels. Some even use pieces for, for clothing. Some even use pieces for, for mattresses as a sanitary towels. So I saw that there is a need uh, for us to address this. And I always struggle and strain so much to ensure that uh, these kids or these girls are accessing the same. Additionally, apart from fighting for the FGM, which of course I can share with you with a lot of with writing about why I'm against this. And of course, I know that you already understand that FGM is not is not right for the to be done. Um, I also ensure that uh, I support girls that are being uh, married in a very early age. Um, and uh, right now, uh, I am the main point where girls are running away to. Uh, when a girl is being given to for early marriage, maybe to an early old man, they run uh, where I am for support, for protection for the right for the education. And uh, as we speak right now, I have 52 girls, which already under my support, uh, through different people who are giving financial support for, for their tuition fee payments. So right now I have 52 girls. And around uh, 16 girls of out of 52 have rescued uh, from early marriage. And uh, they're under my care and always ensuring that uh, they have their basic needs. I'm ensuring that... Um, during holidays, they have a place to stay until the rest of the of the of the of the kids of kids go back to school. So that is uh, some of the other projects that I'm doing on right now. Uh, because uh, uh, students have uh, came home uh, two days ago, just for ten days holiday, and then they go for for a new term. Right now, in my records, I have six girls already, which I'm also seeking a lot of support to ensure that uh, a, a school open they are going back to, to access education because some, some uh, three of them are orphans and three of them are being uh, given to, to an early marriage. Of course, it is not right. So that is something else extra that I'm doing. Well, I, I love that work. I mean, I, I think that, that all of your work is very progressive. And in my mind, the road to progress lies through empowering women. I love that that's part of your mission. I'm very excited to hear about everything you're doing. I'm very excited to hear about how connected you are to the animals of the area and how such an, that's such an important part of, of the work you do. And, and I'm so glad you were able to join us today on our hen house. Thank you so much, Jack. Uh, maybe additionally, um, I'm also coming up with a tree planting project whereby we need to have a tree nursery and, and, and have around a, a target of 10,000 uh, tree seedlings so that as we move on to one school to another, spreading uh, the importance of conservation, we always have to, to plant trees uh, during the sessions. And also we'll be able to have trees uh, to plant even, even in the conservancies, in the, even in the Masimara National Reserve. When we find a place in the park which is very dry, like what I did when I was in college in Nairobi, whereby I organized tree planting in the Nairobi National Park, 
because of course it is not every place that there is a lot of trees in the park there are some places who would like to do a reforestation course in the Masemara National Reserve where these animals are of course it is a park but we need to do a reforestation because um in the past or even some sometimes there is outbreak of fires a lot of uh, plants are being destroyed so um uh, coming up with the same project even though uh, the main problem here is a source of water for the animals for the for the people and also for for the same projects but hopefully as we come up with such pro- projects hopefully uh, in the coming years or in the coming future we'll be able to get uh, very willing people who can even support us to do uh, drilling water uh, from underground to, to supply for the community and to start to supply to all these projects. And uh, what giving me uh, to make an opportunity that is giving me to make a very positive impact in our community, and also it, it is giving an attention for people to listen to me, is because of what I'm doing to them. For the education for the kids, for the feeding programs, and also throughout the pandemic, I've been um, feeding uh, thousands of families, uh, reaching them to ensure that uh, they are, we are fighting against hunger, we are fighting against malnutrition, we are against the starving crisis. When, when you are helping a lot, always people are ready to follow you, always people are ready to listen to what you are saying, and uh, this is making all this to be very successful. Yeah, that is absolutely. That is the fundamental part of leadership is to help people. And then, of course, they will they will listen more to what you're saying. Very, very powerful. I, I actually should ask you one more question. How can people who are listening learn more about and support your work? Yes, I think uh, this is uh, very simple, but uh, this is the most challenging part. All my projects or all these projects are GoFundMe projects, which, of course, we raise a lot of funds or we raise whichever amount of funds that we receive uh, through the social media, and this is mainly uh, through my Facebook page. I seek support from from, from few friends. Of course, GoFundMe, you cannot set up when you're in Kenya, so someone helps from another country has to set up for you, and then I have to do a lot of marketing. I have to talk, uh, to make a lot of voice uh, on Facebook to attract people, to make people understand, and uh, it is the most uh, difficult part of it because over the past uh, uh, times, uh, for example, if I can talk about the tree planting project, uh, for the last uh, almost six months, I've been um, raising funds for the tree planting project, and of course, there is not an up, there is no any donation. If someone, or if I'm not, if I'm not careful enough, if I'm someone who can give up, I can easily, I, I can easily uh, leave the project simply because uh, it seems like uh, sometimes you feel like you are being assumed. Some sometimes you feel like uh, people are taking this project is not important, is not the first priority. But of course, I will keep on and I will keep on pressing. When it comes to the to the food uh, food relief program for the community, I've used uh, the new projects making a lot of posts, uh, ensuring that I use the language that everyone understands, ensure that I reach those, those people who already understand what I'm doing, to share the posts to friends and also uh, globally. The main part of it is the GoFundMe, of which all these are on my, on my, Facebook, on my Facebook page. That okay. is the only platform that we are using currently. Like the Million Dollar Fagan, whom already we have worked now for three years, and we have built a lot of trust. That is the only organization right now that can send uh, funds directly to my end through through bank account. Uh, and this is for the three schools because uh, we receive every month we receive uh, USD seven thousand every month to deliver this food for these 
for these uh, dress codes every month. So unless a lot of trust is built, that is the only way people can do directly to you. But um, I've also adapted to use the GoFundMe so that those people who have not yet already received uh, the better understanding of it can always donate as little as they can. So specifically, that is what I can say. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. And and thanks for joining us today. It, it's really been very exciting to find out about the work you're doing. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is a doozy. It's from Turkey. Turkey bans production of vegan cheese. Plant-based paneer, production and sale of, quote, vegan cheese outlawed in Turkey. This is by Flora Southie from Food Navigator. And yeah, that's kind of what's happened. All right, we've heard of many places that have banned using certain words to describe vegan products that mimic animal-based products. But Turkey is taking this a step further and has actually banned the sale of vegan cheese. Talk about anxieties rising. Fortunately, the Vegan Association of Turkey has filed a lawsuit against the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry. Uh, this This new regulation says that products that give the impression of cheese... What the fuck does that mean? Products that give the impression of cheese cannot be produced using vegetable oil or other food ingredients. These people... Like, just just get with the program, folks. They do go through the all of the other bans, but as I said, they're, they're, they're bad enough. <laughs> I'm not saying they're not bad, but they're on language. In 2017, the European Court of Justice implemented a ban on the use of dairy names such as milk, butter, cheese, and yogurt for plant-based products. For some reason, you can still use coconut milk, peanut butter, almond milk, and ice cream. I don't know why. Uh, in 2020, the European Parliament voted against a ban on meaty terminology for plant-based alternatives such as burger, sausage, or steak. However, very recently, South Africa banned meaty terms for vegan products, which include veggie biltong. I I have no idea what biltong is, but I assume it's some meat-related product in South Africa. And plant-based meatballs. Can't use that. God forbid anybody would be so deceived that they would hear the term plant-based meatballs and think it was made out of a dead animal. So that's what's going on in Turkey. Let's keep an eye on that lawsuit. It'd be interesting to see what happens. All right, this one will make you crazy. Well, it makes me crazy anyway. It's from the New York Times. It's a book review. And the book is Pig Ears by Ellen Gados. And uh, this is some memoir. 
It's called Pig Years, and it's about her years, which I guess still continue, working as a farmhand, which, you know, she has, she loves working as a farmhand. Welcome to the farm, it starts off. Prepare to get dirty and be dazzled. Well, then there's this picture of Ellen embracing a pig who looks extremely uncomfortable and like he or she would like to get away. But, you know, what do I know? What this young writer has given us, according to this article, is more of a memento mori, rendering realistic scenes full of vivid and sometimes bizarre detail, always with an acknowledgement on the surface or just under it, of the inescapable facts that life entails death and growth and arises from decay. Don't you just want to vomit already? The reason she got into this, she's not from a farming family, but she grew up in Vermont and she was drawn to the, quote, gentle bovines with big, wet brown eyes and wanted to be a part of their world. So at 18, she got a job at a beef and vegetable farm. Like she wanted to be part of their death, apparently. You know, apparently every night she went to college, but then every year she comes back and she works for practically nothing doing all of this work as a farmhand and, of course, writing her book. The book covers five years of jobbing on several farms, most of them producing vegetables. But, you know, the title of the book, this article, the picture, they're all about the pigs. The pigs she actually raises herself. They are what this article refers to as a side hustle bought as pig. This is I'm just going to read you this whole paragraph because I can't talk about it. Bought as piglets at the beginning of each season and fattened on grain and scavenged food, cafeteria waste from the local school, cartons of spoiled cream. Gatos gives them names, notices their different personalities, and watches over them. There's an, a description of porcine sex that one just can't unsee. Until the days grow short and cold. Then guns arrive, knives are sharpened, and the pigs are killed and frozen in boxes that Gatos will trade, sell, and eat through the long winter. Her extended exploration of what it is to nurture life, wild and domesticated, plant and animal, and also end it, is one of the most compelling parts of the book. Gag me. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, reading the review is bad enough, but you know, they just love it. They just love anything that makes them feel better about life and death and how they, how they enjoy causing it. Gatos, uh, she has a boyfriend who, you know, is really not into this whole thing. And she longs, this, this line just kills me. She longs for a child with him, a longing entwined abstractly with the animals she raises, a little frightened for her children. I mean, she craves a form of connection more permanent than the short cycles of birth, husbandry, and death. Well, yeah, if you kill like your pets every year, I guess you would want something a little bit more permanent. The article concludes, Gatos lets us into her world and we follow her to the worthy and unforgiving place where nature and agriculture meet. Oh my God. I'm sorry to have shared that with you because even just thinking about it makes me nuts. All right. Our this isn't really arising. Well, I, I think anxieties are rising about this story, but this is just a straight story. This is from Beef Magazine and it's been covered in all of the uh, websites, the meat industry websites. Climate environmental groups want EPA to target CAFOs, and I'll tell you, it would be about time. This involves a letter. This is from 218 organizations, mostly environmental organizations. And the letter basically says that CAFOs represent environmental justice crisis that has gone unaddressed. Ain't that the truth? It was sent to the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, Michael Regan, 
and urges him to act on the EPA's existing authority. This is not about getting new laws. This is about the EPA isn't using the laws it has to do everything it can to provide, quote, federal oversight of concentrated animal feeding operations under the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act. So they have the laws. They're just not using them. And it does say that um, there are several rulemaking petitions also pending against uh, within the EPA, asking them to do things like list industrial dairy and hog operations under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, rescind the air consent agreement and enforce clean air laws against CAFOs. This is refers to this disgraceful, disgraceful agreement that was entered into years and years ago in which the EPA said, well, it needed to gather information about the air pollution spread by CAFOs. So they entered into a consent agreement with the big companies and said, if you provide us with this information, we won't enforce the law against you during that time. And it's just gone on and on and on that they just don't bother to enforce the Clean Air Act against CAFOs, even though it's completely applicable. Also, another petition to revise Clean Water Act regulations as they apply to CAFOs. The Clean Water Act is enforced against CAFOs, but obviously not nearly vigorously enough. And this letter also, I, I like the way they put this, and asks the EPA to end the regulatory exceptionalism for the industrial livestock agribusinesses profiting from the exploitation of environmental justice communities. Because, of course, all of these all of these nightmares are, are put in the most vulnerable communities. It also cites a 2021 study that found approximately 12,700 deaths per year from air pollution in the U.S. that are attributable to livestock production. We don't even think so much. I mean, everybody knows that water pollution is caused by animal agriculture, but the, the air pollution is horrifying, horrifying. So, you know, I like the fact that, that they're saying we don't need new laws. We just need to enforce the laws we've got because, you know, the chance of getting new laws at this point are, isn't great. So this is one to keep an eye on. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us if you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.